That is Weird, the Gay Dad Podcast with Alex Megan and Jan Dekiel. Hello and welcome to another episode of Daddy Square, the Gay Dads Podcast. I'm Jan. I'm Alex. And Alex, I know you don't like to talk before we introduce our guests and co-hosts. It just seems so rude. They're sitting here. They're just sitting. <laughs> we, we have two co-hosts today. Uh, good morning, Stephen and Spencer. Good morning. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. It's like, like the gay man's chorus. Yeah. We didn't plan that. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Well, I'm Steven, and I am originally from Ohio, been in L.A. for about four years now. I do talent and organizational development for a biotech company based in Culver City. And Spencer and I have been together now for about two years. Yay! Where did you meet? Oh, we met through a mutual contact. It was really by chance. We probably... Synchronicity. Wouldn't have met otherwise, but yeah, we, we happened to meet by chance. It was a school night. Five hours later, we were still chatting. So are you married? We are engaged. Oh, yes. that's wonderful. We both okay. want two kids, so it's kind of a good match for us. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you know, How about you? Um, I am originally from Utah. I'm third of seven children. I moved to Los Angeles sef- 17 years ago. Um, I grew so up- he's a native. Uh, yeah, so this <laughs> totally. is home now. Well, yeah, does 17 years counteract Utah completely, or is there still a little Utah left, or what? Not much. You know, Utah was such a great place to get a foundational basis, and then I think I spent years sort of having a very contrasted experience from what I grew up with and- Realigning with what feels right with my soul. So um, there's a lot of good I took from it, but also some things I had to leave behind. Right. Uh, and uh, I love my family. They're great people. They're very accepting. And uh, I'm happy to be in a city that helps me thrive. And, you know, I'm a very creative person. I grew up acting and music was a huge part of my life. And I attended film school, moved to L.A. and started pitching TV and kind of picked up some side jobs doing makeup uh, for celebrities and that's continued now for 17 years and uh, had some other interesting phases I had a seven-year dual career as an interior designer um, and now I focus on now you're I, an exterior designer <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> now I um, continue doing makeup but I launched a, a beauty and skincare line maybe 18 months ago with some business partners and and that's been going very well and the uh, name of which is <laughs> Spencer Barnes LA all right which uh, is my Instagram name so um, awesome yeah life is very exciting and I also write and produce music that's another passion oh, wow. well, of mine. so what I'm hearing you say is there's not much going on in your lives both of you so Boring why lives. not why not have children <laughs> we can't keep them still <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm like we got to figure this out and that's what we're here for we're going to To help Steven and Spencer find out more about surrogacy today, uh, we interviewed Dr. John Hessler from ORM Fertility. He's a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist. All right. Did I say it right? Yeah, I was hoping that we were going to get a nice blooper reel out of your attempt <laughs> no. to say endocrinologist, but damn it. <laughs> Who had helped uh, build one of the first embryology laboratory clean rooms in the world. He's internationally recognized for his innovative methods for IVF treatments. I think it's so nice that he created a clean room. room for IVF our children were made in like you know filthy a laundry room or something like that. it's obvious turkey based from the way they conduct themselves that it wasn't a clean room before we go to the interview I want to um, talk uh, to you guys and especially to you Alex about the morning routine 
Okay. Because there's a, a phase, and I don't know, like you guys are, uh, you don't have kids yet, but you will face these problems where every morning one of our kids doesn't want to go to school. Yeah. And that complete, that starts a, a cycle of meltdown, some Sometimes it's infectious. Yep. Alex and I are both like helpless. We don't know what to do about it. Well, so we've learned some things. Uh, one thing is, for example, that e- e- they need to wake up early enough before the time that you depart for school because, you know, you can't wake them up or have them wake up by themselves, you know, 20 minutes before you put their clothes on and push them out the door. They will lose their mind. I'm the that. same way. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, I think it's 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 kind of human, right? So that's, that's one. Two, we discovered something very important, at least about one of our kids, which is an early sugar spike in the morning is a bad thing. I always assumed, you know, it'll help them get going. It's a bad thing because when they get to school, at least one of them would, you know, lose his mind. So there's that. But then beyond that, you know, I mean, we have not figured out what the moods are, what the what causes these things to, you know, to happen. I thought maybe what if they got a bad. Okay, let's pose this question to you guys. Now, let's say you guys are about to go to work. Uh, You have a client, Spencer, and you just go to work. And the kids, one of the kids doesn't want to go to school. And it's like 20 minutes to the time when you are supposed to go. What, what would you do? I would, I don't know. I, I'm an emotional, sentimental person and I would feel that feeling. And I would probably just work from home that day and just, okay, let's, let's just stay home for the day. (laughs) It's funny. It's it's funny because that, that, that sounds like it's not the right answer to the question, but I think it, it depends on why and under what circumstances you choose to do that. It might make sense. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that, so as the guy in the couple, uh, this is Alex, who is it? Yeah. Who has the, the, most difficult time saying no and sticking to it, I would say that there's a huge long-term impact. And it is that even though it just seems like it's in one area and it's not a problem, they develop an understanding of who you are and what they're going to be able to do with you through things that don't even seem like they're that big a deal. And the next thing you know, you can't get anything done with them because they look at you and they say, oh, you're the one who will stay home with me all day rather than, you know, just say, no, you're going to school. I can manipulate you. They are masters. I mean, they will find and, – and listen, I have a theory as to why everyone says, well, how children, why are they so brilliant at manipulation? It actually makes perfect sense. It's all they are there to do right now. At this age, our kids are four. At, at two and three and four, their entire lives is negotiation. It's I, I want this, uh, you know. Coming up with ways to get what they with, want. Right, because yeah. ultimately that's all that they're working on in their lives. They're not mm-hmm. also writing an opera at the same time or anything like that or you know, going to their job. All they're doing is saying, how can I get what I want and learning uh, what will work and and what won't. One of my favorite studies is um, a team of of experts that wanted to find out how to first find children that could be um, 
sort of negotiated with into giving up something they want right now to get something doubly good yes. later. Yeah, like the marshmallow studies. So yes. they were told if they give them if if they waited for up to so many minutes, they could have two marshmallows. But if they wanted only one marshmallow, they could have it right now, right. and that's all they would get. So I've thought about that often and wondered when I do have children, when we have children, how we will use reason and negotiation to set up rewards for and find things they actually want that we can use right. to work with them. I have a client who's got a, a young one right now and we worked on a show called Flirty Dancing. So she uh, had had several mornings where there were meltdowns. <laughs> She's also a, a mother who's who's recently gone through a, a divorce and uh, now there's a wonderful new man in her life and they're preparing for baby number two. Right. Mm. So it's been interesting watching her some days. She's like Stephen probably melts her heart when her little girl has a meltdown and uh you know so they've had to learn how to negotiate with her to get her to go yeah to the, the marshmallow thing is really it's an art i mean you have to once you get the idea and well and here's the thing just the marshmallow experiment by itself um won't really get you anywhere so uh we've done it we've tried this thing um not not per se with marshmallows right. necessarily but with like we're at the store you can get this mediocre thing that you've been asking for in the store now or you cannot get it and when we get home we're going to give you you know whatever something amazing um and one of them says no i want this thing now right The problem is, one, that then when you get home and they want the much bigger thing, you can't cave in. You yes. absolutely under no circumstances right. can't, can cave in. I'm saying this, by the way, to myself because I'm yeah. the one who caves in. <laughs> um, but then the other thing is then you have to do it again and you have to do it again soon because the first time around they don't make the connection that that's really what happened so then if the next day or even later in that day you find another way to do a marshmallow type situation then they're going to start understanding that that pattern which is wait waiting might get me something yeah. better I don't know that we've accomplished that yet and I'm not entirely sure that children at certain ages are even capable of it yet yeah I, I feel there there needs to be a healthy balance like I don't think children should always hear the word no because as they're growing up then they feel like they're unworthy of having things if they're constantly being told no and then you have these you know I guess like teenage adult issues that right. you know they're trying to recover from right or they be or they become automatized which you know or that you don't want that to happen right um, and then they end up going to Yale which just bleh, nobody <laughs> if you guys have <laughs> if you guys have any recommendations for us or just want to share your stories uh, of how do you get your kids to school in the morning when they don't want to please write to us at hello at daddysqr.com or on Facebook at daddy squared I'm working on a catapult that will just fling them yeah <laughs> All right, let's go to the interview now. Alex, do you want to read the, the, the poof? The poof, poof? The poof? The poof. The, the what? hell are Forgot you the word. Okay. I just forgot. Read it. Just read it. <clears throat> I'll read the thing. Daddy Squared, the Gay Dads Podcast Season 3, is sponsored by Love is Family by ORM Fertility, your gateway to fatherhood. Research begins at loveisfamily.com. Yes, and there's um, some new articles this week on lovisfamily.com. If you guys are looking to have kids, all sorts of uh, researches and, and interesting right. articles. Got, What got, happened? Got I don't know. <laughs> right. 
Teresa. Hi, Doctor. Hello. Good, good morning. All right, so we're all here. Um, let's. Uh, we're here with Stephen. Good morning. And Spencer. Hi there. How are hi, you? Hi, Stephen and Spencer. So why okay. don't you start with a description of how it goes? Like, well, what does they, it mean? If they came and visited you. Okay. Um, well, um, they would need to um, make some decisions regarding uh, how they want to create their family. Um, there are different options, of course. Um, in um, some couples, only one man will provide sperm, whereas in other couples, both men will provide sperm to create embryos so that they could each be genetic fathers. Um, they would need to select an egg donor either through um, a clinic or through an egg donor agency, or they may need to reach out to a friend to ask a friend to be an egg donor. And then they would also be um, partnering with a, a surrogate uh, to carry the baby for them. So they may find a surrogate through a surrogacy agency, or perhaps a friend will volunteer to be a surrogate for them, a friend or a relative. That, that's not as common as finding a surrogate through an agency, but we, we often help uh, men who have a friend or a family member who's willing to carry a pregnancy for them. Yeah, we're hoping to take uh, some friends as volunteer as Tribune for For, for the surrogacy, but we'll, we'll, we'll see when that, when that time comes. Yeah, we're open to learning as much as we can about all the different ways, some of the things to expect, the pros and cons, the cost, uh, some of the maybe. So, so yeah. what, what, are some of the, what are some of the pros and cons of going with uh, someone that you know, a, a, a friend as an egg donor? Well, uh, generally, if it's someone you know, the expectation is that that person will have a role in the child's life. So your child would, would know that she was the donor and that probably your child would periodically see her and she might play a special role in, in your child's life. Um, egg donors that are um, anonymous or semi-anonymous would not have that same role, um, although you might be able to meet them and your future child may be able to meet them, but they wouldn't, there generally wouldn't be likely to be a very close connection over time. This is Alex. Uh, when we did our kids, um, we did not go with an egg donor who we knew. And I think one of the factors was that the agency provided egg donors who were already uh, had all kinds of uh, physical checks and background checks and, and all of this stuff that meant that we were most likely to, I guess, have success. And so when you, when you bring somebody who is a friend or you know, an acquaintance, um, she may be very willing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she has you know, the right setup physically for this to work out right, correct? Uh, that's true. Um, certainly, um, donors that apply to our uh, clinic, for example, to donate undergo a very vigorous screening process. Um, and only about 7% of the women who apply to be donors actually are accepted and go through the process. Um, whereas if a friend or a family member agrees to, to donate for you, um, she may not be optimal in terms of her egg quality or in terms of her family's um, medical background. Um, so if the woman who is the donor is uh, someone that the couple knows who volunteers to be a donor, she would need to undergo a very um, thorough screening process 
Um, but for example, sometimes we'll have sisters donate um, for couples, and I've treated donors who've been as old as 40 and 41, who have been sisters of the of one of the men in the in the couple, and the treatment has worked, but the chance of it working would be is much less if the egg donor is is older, just because there's much higher rates of genetically abnormal eggs. And this not being Game of Thrones, obviously it will be the spouse of the person whose sister is donating the eggs. Correct. Of course, yes. Yes, that's true. And, right. Yes. And I have a question about the surrogate. So the surrogate is is the same way? I mean, let's say that the couple say this woman is willing to carry our our embryos. What do you do in order to make sure that it's uh, potentially a success? We would first... Um, obtain the medical records of the um, potential surrogates past pregnancies and deliveries and review them to make sure that there were no complications in previous pregnancies. All surrogates uh, are women who've had children in the past and who have children who are living at home with them. Um, so is, is, that, is, that your, is that your policy as a, an organization or is that some kind of a, a regulation or something? Um, that would be part of the um, guidelines for practice that our medical society has uh, issued. So we, we would never treat a woman as a surrogate who's never delivered a baby in the past um, because she's not gone through pregnancy and delivery. So um, it would be more certainly more difficult for her to uh, give it, give consent because she doesn't know what she's really going um, to go through. And there are potential risks of women carrying pregnancies. And we want to make sure that um, a surrogate is someone who would have a low-risk pregnancy. So from start to finish, what is kind of the timeline um, going through this process? Um, usually it takes, I would say, about nine months to treat the egg donor and surrogate. Um, and one of the reasons why I would use that as a, as a figure is that um, often it takes a few weeks or months to be matched with a surrogate, for a couple to be matched with a surrogate. And then the pregnancy itself takes nine months. So it's about a year and a half from starting the process to when the baby is born. And again, because this is new to us, is this something that um, you know is covered through any t- sort of medical insurance, or or how do, how does that process work? Because I it know some be, states uh, more do. More, yeah, more and more um, men are uh, have insurance plans that may cover part of the process. Um, so it's something that the fertility clinic would evaluate. Um, but the total cost can be quite high just because uh, if the couple is using uh, a compensated egg donor, an egg donor who's being paid to donate her eggs, and a surrogate who's being paid to carry the pregnancy, um, the cost can, can, can add up to um, $150,000 in some cases or even more depending upon who the egg donor and who the surrogate is. Um, when we did this um, four years ago, um, our surrogate had uh, health insurance, and her health insurance covered she her. She had Obamacare? Yes, she had Obamacare. Um, and even if she had not, her husband was had family uh, health insurance. And she was covered for her pregnancy for us. Um, but I have heard, and doctor, I don't know if you've heard about this, that 
Um, in some states or some insurance companies, they have specifically carved out coverage uh, for a woman's pregnancy uh, when she's doing it for somebody else. Uh, is that is that a, the case? Have you heard about this? Um, yes, a lot of insurance plans uh, have have done that. So the um, surrogacy agency uh, would evaluate uh, the surrogates insurance coverage and if there is not coverage through her her personal plan then um, generally the surrogacy agency would help uh, arrange through an insurance broker uh, for the surrogate to have a plan that would cover obstetrical care and the intended parents would have to pay for that plan often um, the plans that are purchased for surrogate pregnancies come through the Affordable Care Act Obama's health care plan very interesting you know as we've started talking about this more seriously we've had um, a number of friends girlfriends who have step forward even without even knowing that we're considering this offering either eggs or to be um, a surrogate for us um, many of them have not had children so in in that kind of a case if it's, if it's a friend a girlfriend who comes forward what would be the risks with that and would it even be a viable option oh it's certainly possible for a friend of yours to donate eggs to you um, there's no requirement that the egg donor have had a pregnancy in the past although the egg donor will be screened to evaluate her egg quality sure. and egg numbers and she'll undergo some genetic tests to make sure that she's a good genetic match for the uh, couple or the uh, single man who's um, having children through this process with People who volunteer to be surrogates, we would evaluate their uterus to make sure it's healthy. So she would have an ultrasound study. We uh, certainly, of course, also perform infectious disease tests to screen for diseases. Sure. The surrogate and the egg donor is screened by a psychologist to make sure that she uh, has a suitable psychological health, uh, psychological background to be an egg donor or a surrogate. The legal steps in determining that the child is the offspring of the intended parents is usually quite straightforward in most states. So quite often the um, attorney will go before the court, before the baby is born, to uh, get a declaration from the judge that the baby is the baby of the future parents and not the baby of the surrogate. So once the baby is born, it's immediately recognized legally as the uh, child of the parents. And generally, in most states, both men can be put on the birth certificate, if it's a male couple, uh, as the uh, fathers of the child. One other question while we're kind of on this topic. I've had friends who have done the surrogacy route. Um, one of my friend couples, they tried twice and both of those embryos failed. I was curious, how many eggs does it usually are, are collected with, uh, you know, to be made as viable embryos? And for another thing that I've encountered more, more commonly is couples, gay couples that want to have kids. And so they often end up having twins. Uh, to make it a little bit of an easier process having them together, probably a little harder that first year, but um, we've considered that. And uh, interestingly enough, um, have had several intuitives say there's twins in the future. So I don't know. Uh, oh, really? I love we'll, that. We'll leave it to a possibility, but um, what are, okay. is it, um, 
usually a chance, like let's say you plant three viable embryos and one takes, what are the chances and how many viable embryos are usually implanted um, for two to, two to end up holding and developing into full term? It would be very, very unusual to place more than two embryos into the uterus of a surrogate. Yeah, we don't need octomom again. Yeah. So generally, um, the choice or the decision is whether one embryo or two embryos should be placed. In more and more cases, we're transferring a single embryo just because twins do have a higher risk of complications, um, a higher risk of prematurity. There's a greater chance that the surrogate would need a cesarean section. But the choice is ultimately the choice of the intended parents in the surrogate. Pregnancy rate and live birth rate is higher if two embryos are placed as compared to one. For example, in our program, uh, if we transfer one embryo, the live birth rate is 68%. uh, And the uh, chance of identical twins is 1.5%. So an embryo can split into two embryos after it's been placed in the uterus. And if we transfer two embryos, uh, the live birth rate has been 86%. And um, 65% of the surrogates deliver twins if we transfer two embryos. So the twin rate is very high. There's even about a 1% chance of triplets if we transfer two embryos, because again, an embryo can split into two embryos, and that would be considered a very high-risk pregnancy. Right. One of the things, one of the things, doctor, that please correct me if I have this wrong, is when I talk to straight couples who have gone through IVF, um, the stats that they provide are much, much lower. But I think that the reason for that is because they're going through IVF because they've had trouble because it's been difficult. And in and in this case, when we're doing IVF um, for you know a, a, a gay couple with um, a surrogate and an egg donor, the surrogate and egg donor are usually in prime physical health in order to get this right the first time. So the likelihood that everything's going to go smoothly is actually much, much higher in that situation than when uh, a woman is having trouble getting pregnant and so they do IVF and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Do I have that right? Yes, I I would say that that is correct in that Uh, The egg donor and the surrogate are women who have optimal fertility, and uh, the the men who are planning their family through egg donation and surrogacy usually have normal sperm quality. So no one in the process is infertile, Um, so the chance of success is very high. Right. Um, one of the questions you asked earlier is how many embryos normally will grow in from one egg collection. And if we look at our clinic's data, uh, the average number of mature eggs that we collect from a donor is 22. Wow. And um, out of that group of eggs, the average fertilization rate is between 70 and 75%. So some of the eggs that we collect may not fertilize. Then we'll let the embryo grow in the laboratory for five to six days. And during that time, the embryo should divide many times the cells of the embryo so that when the embryo is five or six days old, it should have more than 100 cells inside of it. Uh, Only about half of the eggs that fertilize will grow into an advanced embryo. So some of the eggs that fertilize will lead to embryos that stop growing when they're two or three days old. 
So we always expect to have a lower number of usable embryos than the number of eggs we start with. So for example, if we have 18 or 19 eggs that fertilize, the average number of embryos that reach the blastocyst stage, which is the medical term for an embryo with more than 100 cells, is around 9.7 in our program. And then it's become quite common to biopsy embryos to analyze the chromosomes before the embryo is placed in the surrogate's uterus. And we can safely remove about five cells from the future placenta and do genetic tests to determine if the cells that we've biopsied have 46 chromosomes, the correct number, or if they have an extra chromosome or a missing chromosome. And when we do that sort of testing, what we find is that about two-thirds of the embryos that we test have normal chromosomes, and about one-third of the embryos that look normal microscopically are actually genetically abnormal. Um, so it's a, this sort of testing gives us more insights as to which embryos we should use first. Is that yes. as far as it, as it goes? I mean, I think I remember that in our case they did more than a chromosome count, they did some genetic testing beyond that. Is that, is that happening commonly? They're, the main um, screening that's done of embryos is analyzing the chromosomes through um, sequencing to look to see if there's any additional DNA or missing DNA in the chromosomes. It is also possible to test the embryos or to test the man providing sperm and the woman providing eggs to determine if there would be a risk of an embryo or future child with a genetic disease like cystic fibrosis, sure. where there's only a very small mutation in DNA. But most, most men don't have that risk. But we would do a blood test on the sperm provider and on the egg provider to determine if there are carriers for about 280 rare genetic diseases to make sure that there's an appropriate match um, of the egg donor and the sperm provider. Very cool. So also while we're on this talk about the early stages, what goes into gender selection if uh, the couple desires to determine the sex of their child or let's say if they want to have twins and they want a boy and a girl, um, what, what how is that done and, and at what stage in the process is that determined? So that's done through, um, through biopsying the embryo at the blastocyst stage when the embryo has more than 100 cells. At that stage of development, we can tell clearly which cells will form part of the placenta, and they're called the trophectoderm cells, and which of the cells inside the embryo will form the baby. Um, the um, cells are removed, the DNA is analyzed, each chromosome is tested. Um, so we do test and find if the embryo contains an X and an X chromosome, which would lead to a girl, or an X and a Y chromosome that would lead to a boy. Of course, there's this there's this other factor, which is, I don't know what the terminology is that was used, but effectively the the quality of the embryos, right? You can have viable embryos, but there are better viable embryos in terms of likelihood to make it through pregnancy and less viable. Is, is that the case? Yes, that's, that's correct. There's 
There's two ways of assessing the potential of the embryo when it reaches day five or day six of growth. One is uh, the genetics, but also very importantly, is the appearance of the cells under the microscope. So the embryologist will give the embryo a grade based on how the cells uh, appear. For example, um, there's a grading scale where the cells that form the baby are graded. They're given a grade of A, B, or C. And the cells that will form the placenta are graded based on their microscopic appearance, and they're given a grade of A, B, or C. So the embryologist uh, would prefer to pick an AA embryo for transfer over a BB embryo. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. BB embryos can lead to babies as well, but their chance might be somewhat less. Right. So if a couple really wanted a girl and there mm-hmm. was an AA boy embryo, male embryo, and a BB female embryo, would you strongly advise? Uh, I'll, I'll actually give you an example. This is a true story. Um, there was a very nice couple that I was helping um, who live in France, and uh, they were planning on having their children through egg donation and surrogacy. And they went through this treatment process, and they ended up with eight genetically normal embryos. Um, seven of their embryos were male, and one embryo was female. The female embryo was a grade BB. The, all of the male embryos were happened to be grade AA. And um, so after we got the results back from the genetics laboratory, I spoke with them and reviewed the results with them. And we talked about which embryo they would want to use. They they did tell me that they wanted to have more than one child. Um, but what they decided was to transfer the female embryo first. They knew that the female embryo potentially had a lower chance of leading to a pregnancy. But they... Uh, felt that they should give the female embryo a chance. So we transferred the embryo, and they had a beautiful daughter. Um, Then, uh, to complete the story, they went through a second treatment uh, with the same surrogate. The surrogate agreed to carry another baby for them, which was wonderful. And um, we transferred one of the male embryos, and they ended up having identical twin sons. Wow. <laughs> Actually, that's, I wanted to ask you, going back to what you were saying before about twins, um, we have twin IVF twins um, from, from four years ago, is that since then there seems to be a little bit of a um, shift in the way uh, the medical profession is viewing implanting two embryos in this kind of situation, meaning – uh, doctors have a tendency to be discouraging it. Is that the case because uh, risks are higher, et cetera? I think that um, doctors across the country uh, are encouraging single embryo transfers because the pregnancy rate is actually very high with a single transfer. The risks are lower. The main concern with twins, even in cases where a surrogates had normal pregnancies in the past, normal single fetus pregnancies, is that with twins, there's, there's certainly a significantly greater risk of premature delivery. The average time when twins are born in the United States is when the woman is 35 weeks pregnant, which means that in that case, the, the babies would be born about two or three weeks premature. And about 15% of twins are born before 32 weeks. And 
for very premature babies, um, they generally do well, but um, they have to spend a prolonged time in the neonatal intensive care unit. And then there are some increased risks of health problems in um, in premature babies, very premature babies. Have you ever looked for a woman who's had twins successfully? Um, do they view her as, for a couple that is considering twins, do they view her as a more viable host for twins? Or is that not a factor that's ever really been studied? I would say if uh, that's a, a very good question. I think if a woman uh, has carried twins successfully in the past without any complications, uh, that's a very positive sign for carrying twins again. Not very many women uh, who've carried twins in the past necessarily are volunteering to carry Let's do twins it again. again. Yeah. Um, Gee, I wonder, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I mean, you could look for someone with that background, but you might have to look a while before you find someone who... Sure. Um, who has that history. Look, I think one of the considerations that is no joke is that having twins, not only through um, birth, but actually to some extent afterwards, is cheaper. It's not – so during the actual – the overall surrogacy, IVF and surrogacy process, I don't know how much it saved us, but it, it probably saved us a significant amount of money. One, we, we, we paid our surrogate more because it was twins, but not double, right? Uh, there, there were a lot of reasons why I think that um, couples can look at this and say, well, it's not two for the price of one, but it's – cheaper than doing two completely separate pregnancies. So it's doctor, for, for, don't forget the age, like we can't wait too well, long. Right. Some of us are right. old and, and we say, you know, I, I want to do this. And I, if I'm going to have more than one child, I'd like to have them very, very soon. So what is your, when, when, when people come to you and say, listen, I, I need to save money by having twins. If they, if they do come to you and say that, uh, what do you say? Well, it's not half the price, of course, just because um, there are some costs that are higher with twin pregnancies. For example, twin, uh, the circuit usually receives a higher compensation for carrying twins, uh, and she would receive a higher compensation normally if she delivers by cesarean section. Um, it is true that if an, a U.S. citizen or uh, a resident of the United States who has U.S. health insurance goes through this process, uh, their personal health insurance will extend to their offspring, to their children when their children are born. So if, if the babies are born early, um, the parent's health insurance plan would cover most, hopefully all, but certainly most of the medical care that a premature child may need. Um, for um, some of the patients that we help who are not living in the United States, um, the risk of very high medical bills for um, premature twins really prevents most of them from uh, transferring to embryos because they cannot accept the risk of having to pay for all the medical costs of premature babies, which could be hundreds of thousands of dollars if the babies, if twins are born, for example, before 30 weeks. 
Right. So with the costs associated um, within the last decade, like how many gay parents uh, would you say have had uh, gone through this process to have children? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, I was looking at data from uh, U.S. data from uh, 2017 and um, their clinics in the United States submit their the results of their treatments to the CDC and uh, to our medical society, which is called SART. And the uh, outcome data is available on the internet. So, so people, potential patients can look at different clinics and compare their results and also look at national data um, by looking at these two websites. And in 2017, there were about a thousand donor egg surrogacy treatments uh, where a single embryo transfer was placed. So that gives you I mean, some idea. And, and I think that was data where the embryos had been biopsied, which most of the couples now that we're helping or single men are choosing to have their embryos biopsied, but not all. The, the percent, though, has certainly increased uh, of, of patients that we're helping and cycles that we're doing for uh, gay men is certainly uh, much higher now than it was 15 years ago, just because there's uh, a lot more media uh, focus on the fact that this is a very effective way to help uh, men become fathers. But you see this more so in single men versus couples? Is that what you said? No, I would say we see it more in couples than single men, but we uh, certainly I help a lot of single men as well become fathers through this process. Tell us a little bit more about when you have collected um, a number of viable embryos. Is it common for um, the the couples that are setting up the su- surrogacy to have those cryogenically preserved in case they want to have additional children? Is that the time you do that, or do you go through a new process when they're ready to have more children, if that's a, a, a choice they make? Well, usually um, the treatment results in, in many embryos that, that potentially could be preserved for the future. So um, embryos can be froze, frozen very effectively, and... Um, once they're frozen, they don't change over time. So men can have a second or third child from embryos that had been frozen uh, three, four, five years or even longer in the past. Uh, and the success rate should be the same with those embryos. Um, so again, in our program, the average number of genetically normal embryos that we have from one treatment, uh, this is in cases where we biopsied embryos, is um, 6.8, so approximately seven. And um, that having seven embryos is usually enough for at least two children and probably more likely three or four considering the um, success rates um, that we've achieved. So sometimes men will actually have more embryos frozen than they actually ever need to use and if they have extra embryos and they've completed their family then they'll have to decide if they would want to donate their embryos to someone else or donate them for a research study performed by a a research laboratory or if they would want the clinic to discard their extra embryos. 
Fascinating. We have two friends that actually went that route. They saved um, their other viable embryos. They had a child. Um, they were thrilled with the process and a year later decided to have what they thought would be a second child, but they were, they had twins. So now they have three children. So um, it's fun to see how things turn out. Would you tell us a little bit about uh, preparing for the possibility of things not to, to work out or for disappointment? Uh, another couple friends that we have uh, had two surrogates and both failed and they spent quite a bit of money. So they ended up adopting. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience with that and how to prepare people for that possibility and what the statistics are, I guess, for the likeliness of that to happen. That's uh, that's very sad. Um, it does occasionally happen. It's generally more likely to occur due to a low number of embryos rather than an issue, a problem, potential problem with the the surrogate. Um, but occasionally men need to, to switch surrogates because during the treatment process, there are rare cases where we'll learn that the surrogate's uterus is not quite as ideal as we would have expected. Most men will achieve a pregnancy uh, within two transfers, but a lot of clinics now uh, will have financial plans where uh, if the men run out of embryos, they can create additional embryos at a very, very reduced cost. There are some guarantee plans that are in existence that clinics may offer that can help if um, a pregnancy doesn't uh, occur with the initial group of embryos that have been created. And similarly, um, if the future parent is working with a surrogacy agency and there isn't a pregnancy that's achieved within two or three embryo transfers, usually it's three embryo transfers, the surrogacy agency will match the couple with a new surrogate for a very, very reduced cost. Because the pregnancy rates are quite high with these treatments, we don't run into this problem very often, but we do occasionally have unfortunate outcomes. And, you know, our goal is to really help our patients become parents. So we look at ways, we try to look outside the box in terms of ways to, to help if the unfortunate bad outcome should occur. But it's not very often where I see someone try to start the process who I think is ill-informed just because there's a lot of education that clinics and surrogacy agencies give um, future parents to make sure that they understand the commitments and the cost. Yeah, Dr. Hessler, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We're delighted for your insights. Thank you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And thank you very much for inviting me to to talk to you today. Hopefully we work with you soon. Okay, we're back from the interview. We're here in the studio with uh, Spencer and Stephen. Uh, guys, you're very natural in interviewing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like- I talk to people every day on a constant, so I guess I'm naturally just 
You guys should have your own podcast. I'm telling you. We have <laughs> tossed around the idea from time to time. I don't, you know, with everything that Spencer has going on, I'm like, I don't know that we should add another thing. I'm not sure if you're aware, but kids and podcasts. You should be aware. You are the only two people who do not have a podcast. I know. You know that's, right? that's what we're told. Anywhere, <laughs> you're nobody if you're not on a podcast. Right. Doctor Hessler's voice was very sexy. You like that gravelly thing that he had going on. Wait a minute. I wanted to uh, just stop here on something. You guys said. Intuitive told us that there are twins in the future. Certain intuitives. Yes. Please yes. tell us more about the intuitives. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I have not always sought out intuitives, but they often find me at grocery stores, at gyms. They'll just come up to me and say, "At a red light." Me, um, no way. Can I talk to you. I don't normally let them do this, but I really, I've got someone here from your mother's side. She really wants to give a message, and and they'll do. Say Who something are they? I want to meet them. Well, one of them you had on your show, Scott <laughs> Cruz. Actually, right. he was You're at kidding. the gym, and he, he's like, you know what? I don't normally let them do this, and it was my grandmother who had recently passed who came through with some important messages for my mother. So. Um, I'm used to that. I don't know. I've, I'm also quite intuitive and it's been more so the last four to five years. And I think when I was younger, I, it would freak me out. I was like, I, there's no way I could know that. I felt like I was spying on people or I would second guess it, but sometimes I get information. And so I've learned to just work with it and, uh, pass it if it feels like an important message for someone. And then, you know, it's up to them to do what they want with it. But so yeah. when you found out, when you heard that twins were in your future, who was it that was effectively telling you this? Not the, it's come from a few different sources. Really? Um, and I've had uh, sort of, I don't, I don't know if you call it psychic dreams. They're a little different than just a regular dream where there's that strong possibility, but that they would be fraternal, a boy and a girl. So. Yeah. It, it's funny because a lot more lately, like this one and I have dreams that really coincide with one another. Wow. And I think around the same time that he had this dream, like mine are very vivid and, and colorful. So I actually had two, two specks of light, um, that I saw in one of my dreams, a very strong uh, blue light and then a very strong pink light. Just oh, for like, God's sake. I, I, sw I couldn't make this up <laughs> even if I wanted to. Uh, and, and they were just, you know, floating around in in dream space. So, you know, it, they're always open to interpretation. But wow. Yeah. Love it. Well, you know, you and guys can actually just make it happen yeah I mean, we could, yes <laughs> so yeah so you know what so the, the, an interesting thing that happened during the interview is the direction of the friends we didn't really talk about that uh on our podcast before like having a friend be the egg donor or the surrogate we've, we've mentioned you, it once yeah. or twice. do you guys so this is something you guys are looking at yeah yeah <laughs> it's a strong possibility you know um i think there's this uh this fascination especially when you're gay and you have girlfriends, they're like, oh my God, I want to have your kid, you know? <laughs> so you take it with a grain of salt, but you know, now that we're considering this, you know, it's like, wait, well, maybe we should, you know, if these people are truly serious about wanting to do this. Well, and would you consider having a, a, a friend do both, both roles, egg donor and surrogate, or would you want to, split that out i would be open to it yeah. would depend on who it is and 
really the situation. Um, I mean, let's 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 just cut to it for a minute. Despite the fact that there may be some risks associated with it, it's also infinitely cheaper right. because you're dodging IVF altogether if you right. go with a woman who is also going to be the egg donor. And we can just take them out the jitter instead. Well, I mean, that's right. Just give them a <laughs> ply them with a glass of wine, and the next thing you know, they've Inside got inside the dotted line. <laughs> yeah, what's the problem? We no. have one girlfriend who she's. She's been married. She's uh, not had any children, but uh, she's she's sort of in that unique window where she's starting to go, okay, this needs to happen in the next so many years, or I might be past that window. Right. She's decided she doesn't need to be a mother per se, but she's she's she wanted to be to say. She said to me, I, "I really like to have my body fulfill its purpose and." create a child. Uh, wow. So if you guys are ever considering it, I would be open to that. So, I mean, there are certain scenarios, you know, that doesn't happen every day, but that was what one friend offered. Wow. Are you open to, to share the child with a, with a mother or like a co-parenting or I don't, do you want? I don't necessarily know co-parenting. However, I would say it would be a nice idea to have this female figure You know, as an aunt exactly yeah exactly yeah yeah I mean I I here's the thing I, I think that this kind of co-parenting concept is fascinating and I don't see a reason why it can't be made to work um, I don't know that I would have been into it but um, you know if our egg donor or our surrogate lived nearby and wanted to somehow be in our kids lives I would love that I mean I, I again I think that there's something very special about the relationship that she has with the kid even if it's not being the mother right sure yeah. So how I, I, I want to ask you, how long – so you guys have been together for two years? Yes. How long ago did you guys start talking about having kids? You know, I think when we first started dating, as everyone does, you, you talk about the core the, values. Exactly. Um, so, you know, knowing that both of us wanted children – We knew that early on, um, but I think fairly recently within the last, I don't know, six-ish months, not to put timelines on ourselves, but we're like, okay, well, we're not getting any younger. Well, no, I am, <laughs> I am but, yeah. <laughs> um, but if this is something that we want to do, we need to you know, look at our options, especially since it can be a lengthy process. Yeah. Yep. Daddy, that's QR.com. Okay, one last thing that I wanted to talk about from the interview is about the frozen embryos. You know that there's an option to donate all the embryos that you don't use. And I don't know, you, what do you guys think about it? Because we didn't do it. No, we didn't. And I'll tell you why after. So that's an interesting question. Um, and I do have actually something I'd like to say about that. My, I have a, a large family of 17 nieces and nephews. My youngest sister, they're all married. My youngest sister, um, her husband had uh, repeated bouts of cancer as a young person. He had um, leukemia and all the years of radiation made it him basically he's, he's infertile. So they decided they were ready to start a family and they worked with a surrogacy donor situation and uh, they found a, a viable match. So for them, they did work through a bank and uh, used actually one of her eggs, but they looked at using embryos that were sort of stored and available. So... Yeah. 
um, it was interesting watching them kind of go back and forth and then ultimately come to a decision. But, you know, not everyone is, I think, I think that case is more for a female who maybe isn't able to, for whatever reason, use her own eggs or uh, may have per- issues with her husband. Maybe they're, they're not a match genetically. They might have children with disability, um, right. you know, yeah. birth defects and so on and so forth. So. There are situations where that might be a, a good option. Right, but let's say you guys go through the IVF process and you have two, a, a blue and a pink embryo, uh, and <laughs> you end up having a blue and a pink child, uh-huh. um, and you have seven embryos left that you didn't use, and they say to you, would you like to donate those embryos for people who, you know, for whatever reason, can't do this? Yes. Yeah. So we said no, and I I, th- I think that yes is wonderful, <laughs> but I think I'm not why sure did we... you say I, I want to tell you why? why okay, I you said. go first. Well, it was my uh, genetics. Oh, that, that's right. It that, was yours it was, was a girl. Embryo. That's right. Yeah. Uh, in my genetics, that we had a one le- one extra, <clears throat> and uh, and we said no. And the reason why is that I had dreams of her coming to me and saying to me, you know, at at a very like older age saying to me, why didn't you pick me? Like, why did you pick right. somebody like, else? Why uh, didn't you adopt and, Why did and, you adopt you know, and Because on, on a certain age, they're allowed to know who their biological parents are. Right. And when she does and she sees that I pick another child, it's going to be traumatic, I think. So I didn't want to face that. Yeah. <laughs> it was pre- purely selfish. Selfish choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting decision. And a perspective to it's it's tough because on one hand like you know making embryos is really expensive and um it is a little sad that we had one and we didn't allow somebody else to take advantage of it who would otherwise not be able to afford doing this so there is that but i guess my yeah, feeling I is out. i, I think know. that bl- other than my husband's freak out um i think blood matters and uh i guess were it entirely up to me, my concern would be that there is another kid running around um, with, you know, my genetic material. I don't know who this kid is. No, for straight men, that probably happens plenty. I was just about to say, like, I think that happens more often. Right, right. But, you know, as a gay man, I'm far more responsible than that. And I, I just felt like I would in some way always have a responsibility for that child. I would. And if that child ever, you know, showed up on our front door, I would be like, okay, well, I got to deal with that now. So, yeah, I don't know. That was my thinking in a, a seemingly little selfish way. Guys, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I would like to encourage our listeners to uh, write to us if you have any comments or notes. Please continue to write to us. We received a lot of uh, comments l- last week about the couples therapy. You know, Alex? Yeah. People love when we share our problems. We share that we have problems. <laughs> yeah. In the next episode, we're actually going we're gonna live. Fight. We're going live from couples therapy. That will not be happening because our couples therapist would never allow it. <laughs> but I think it would be totally cool. And I would win. I would win that episode totally. You won last night. Do you think I won last I night's did, session? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Write to us at hello at daddysqr.com or leave us a message or text us at two one three seven nine three eight nine three nine. That's it for today. Thanks, Thank guys. You guys. Thank you guys See for you. coming. You. See you next week. If you're thinking about having kids, 
Start your search at loveisfamily.com by ORM Fertility. For over 30 years, ORM Fertility has been at the forefront of fertility services, providing personalized care and helping all family types grow. ORM are honored to be a trusted resource for the gay community on their journey to parenthood and are now sharing all they know with you at loveisfamily.com. ORM's expert team gives gay parents-to-be all the information they need and guides them through their unique fertility journey, providing expertise, education, and support every step of the way. Over a thousand gay couples and singles from all over the world have started or grown their family with ORM's support and fertility and financial expertise. Find out more at loveisfamily.com, ORM Fertility's online resource for gay dads and LGBTQ plus family building. Daddy, that's QR.com.